when we would look at the data and look at where the spend is going from a benefit standpoint, billions of dollars annual healthcare spend at, at both employers, um, north of 80% was attributed to medical spend and pharmacy PBM spend. So that's really where I'd concentrate, I'd say the majority of my time and effort and focus. So I was trying to unlock and unpack ways of working better with our vendor partners that we had, as well as looking at creative, innovative pathways forward. Welcome to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and this is a podcast where we learn from top employer experts on how to fix our broken benefits to save lives, save dollars, and save your talent. Welcome back, everybody, to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and uh, excited to bring in today's guest. Uh, today's guest, Jason Perot, ran benefits for both a Fortune 10 and a Fortune 30. He ran benefits for the largest telecom company in the world, the largest aerospace company in the world, managed during his tenure tens of billions of dollars of healthcare spend, and uh, each year at both companies was helping to oversee uh, well over a billion dollars of, of, of healthcare transactions, healthcare spend, and, and services. He evaluated over... 300, 400 companies during uh, any couple of years while during uh, while while having these roles, and also helped to usher in uh, probably the most sophisticated employer to hospital direct contracting platform and and uh, activity that has uh, existed anywhere among the you know the absolute giants uh, in American industry. And so we are so excited to be able to learn from him today. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lee. Pleasure to be here. Marvelous. Well, hey, just kind of starting off, you had an incredible career over decades at these completely storied, multi-century-old companies. Uh, tell us maybe some of the, uh, I don't know, a couple of the highlights of uh, some of the most rewarding things that you were able to do in your career. Yeah, I would say, first of all, it, we had stellar teams, uh, really at both of the prior Fortune 10 and Fortune 30 employers I was at. Um, so no one individual can do everything right. It, it, it really requires a, a really cohesive team. And, you know, I had uh, the privilege of working with a lot of brilliant people that I learned from uh, that mentored me and, um, you know, certainly uh, really enjoyed, uh, I'd say, the camaraderie with all that. So that that's number one. Number two, um, you know, when we would look at the data and look at where the spend is going from a benefit standpoint, billions of dollars annual healthcare spend at, at both employers. Um, north of 80% was attributed to medical spend and pharmacy PBM spend. So that's really where I'd concentrate, I'd say the majority of my time and effort and focus. So I was trying to unlock and unpack ways of working better with our vendor partners that we had, as well as looking at creative, innovative pathways forward to unlock greater value. Everyone, now just a quick word from today's sponsor.
as you think about that, uh, or when you, let's take medical spend for a moment, how would you approach developing your strategy each year around medical spend, both in terms of inputs, what you wanted to do, and then how would you set goals? Yeah. Um, you know, we would take a five-year forward-looking view actuarially to try to forecast out and project as closely as, as possible. I'm taking a conservative approach at that as far as modeling out what, what is our spend trajectory going to look like over mm -hmm. you know, a five-year run. Um, consequently, we'd even take a longer view uh, over a 10-year time horizon to try to figure out what could those you know, years materialize into in, in years six through 10 as well, taking, taking a long view. But we know within healthcare, it's very dynamic, ever-changing. And, um, you know, with that comes a, a great deal of opportunity to bring in new priorities each calendar year and uh, pursue through RFPs in many cases, uh, new, new opportunities to expand or enhance what we're doing from a Medicare perspective, med medical perspective, as well as across the full benefit spectrum. Um, on the medical side alone, we saw a really nice opportunity when we think about direct contracting to try to flatten the trend on spend, right? So mm -hmm. what I think most employers probably have experienced over the last 20 years is just this incremental increase in, in the cost of healthcare. And, you know, medical is, is, is a key factor in that. So if we could tamp down what that year over year trend on spend is looking like, we, our, 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 our thesis was if we could work directly with those medical system providers where we had critical mass. That was one maybe blunt instrument to uh, focus on quality and value. And ultimately that'll drive into greater financial performance with what we're doing as an organization and for the good of our members too. That makes sense. I have to wonder, you know, in particular while you're at Boeing, I think Boeing even comes up in, in, in case studies in business schools and elsewhere around supply chain and supply chain management. And so it almost seemed really on brand that you were looking at hospital systems like a supply chain. Uh, I wonder, was that sort of a part of what the culture was like there? Yeah, you know, I mean, make no mistake about it. When we look at hospitals and the medical providers, access points of care that our members were receiving their care. We, we've known for quite some time, there's pretty wide range of variability on quality mm -hmm. and going hand in glove with that are the clinical outcomes and the financial outcomes, you know, that bear out, um, you know, even going back to, you know, the year 2000, Boeing was one of a short list of progressive employers that helped create the leapfrog group. It was really focusing right. on hospital safety. And, um, right. you know, unfortunately we see, a ton of waste and medical errors in the medical community and anything we can do to put the spotlight and steer towards high quality, high value, you know, definitely was one opportunity that, that we saw could really pay off. Uh, but I, I would tell you that no matter what you do, you really have to focus foundationally on that patient member employee experience. If we can make that better tomorrow than what we've done yesterday, we're going to directionally be in the right, right pathway forward as far as making it easier and more transparent and more timely that can meet the needs that they may have, which is very diverse, you know, from one, you know, individual to another. Yeah. I want to look a little closer about kind of the direct contracting. So uh, in the year when that happened, or 
and and maybe it was just sort of organic. I mean, that it just sort of developed over time. But most employers have no idea anything about direct direct contracting with a hospital. How how did you get started in that? And what might be lessons learned? You know, I, I don't even know if if you'd recommend other employers to look at it. But how how might employers start taking some of those steps? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's a it's a numbers game, and um, there was a team of leaders that were, I would say, aligned and taking a shot. Um, and we demonstrated that over the past decade plus by constructing direct contracts with centers of excellence. Okay. We know that if we could steer members towards high value, high quality centers of excellence for high cost surgical procedures like hip, knee, spine, bariatric, cardiac, for example. Okay. Odds are we're going to certainly uncover maybe originally what was a misdiagnosis or maybe a suboptimal treatment pathway that was originally recommended by the local medical team that that individual is seeing. And, and we and we have seen that bear out. But more importantly, it's it's really ensuring that we have the right diagnosis, the right treatment and the best team possible to take care of our people to deliver the best outcomes possible. When we think about the direct contracting beyond COEs into ACOs, accountable care organizations, um, you know, clearly Intel was, you know, the trailblazer in Albuquerque. And uh, we learned a ton from what their experience was. And, you know, from there, you know, we really had to pursue, I would say, a, a, a team, not just within Boeing, but, you know, some consulting partners as well, and uh, create a framework that we thought could be mutually beneficial, where we had critical mass. And, and this is the numbers game that I, I think is important. Um, when you look at any market across the U.S., uh, chances are they're radically different in a number of dynamics and fronts. But if you have volume that you can potentially run through the doors, uh, access points of care of that particular ACO, at the end of the day, they have a choice as a leadership team as to whether or not they want to adopt and you know take this leap forward to pivot away from fee-for-service which is alive and well and move to a value-based construct, a triple aim framework value-based construct where they'll be measured against, you know, a few dozen quality metrics, you know, that may be derived from national quality forum, or, you know, we've, we've certainly seen CMS, you know, take shots in this area too. And um, we, we really, I would say, tried to harness all these experiences that, you know, were relatively new at the time and nascent and, and, create a framework that we thought could serve our members well and also be mutually beneficial where, you know, um, the, the system, the ACO in any given market that we pursued would ultimately, uh, you know, realize the volume that they could potentially bring in through their doors and, you know, see yeah. that turn into actual claim uh, utilization. How much volume should somebody have before you think they can, they can really start to move the needle with hospitals? You know, our viewpoint was, you know, minimum threshold about 5,000 lives okay. in, in a market or higher, right? So, you know, fortunately for, for, you know, a large jumbo employer like us, you know, we had multiple markets where we had, you know, uh, very large numbers of people that far sure. exceeded, you know, that 5,000 threshold. But, you know, when you get underneath 5,000, it becomes more of a, a financial exercise to try to figure out, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze, right? Are we really mm -hmm. going to create something meaningful from an ROI play, you know, for that market with, you know, relatively smaller 
pool of people, which then begs a question, you know, does it make sense to maybe coalesce with other like-minded employers in that same market that might also be in a similar state where they have, you know, relatively fewer employees than that 5,000 number. And, you know, maybe yeah. there's a way to construct, a, you know, uh, an effort to, to bring, you know, some like-minded employers together in that manner. So I'm imagining you all, you're evaluating your data. You're looking at where you have a lot of people. And, and then in those cities and towns, I'm guessing you'd pull up claims to see where you were spending money on healthcare and what hospitals were present. You'd know that. Uh, you're probably looking over, say, LeapFrog data or other quality sources. I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, you were a founder at LeapFrog. That seems like a great place to look first to find where the safest hospitals are. And then you realize, okay, at ABC Hospital, we'd love to have something direct with them. When you went into that, would, would you sort of go in and say, hey, look, it seems like we're paying four times Medicare here. Maybe we could get three times Medicare just as a simple, like, hey, let's let's start to try and reduce down those unit costs. And then, you know, if you get really sophisticated, you can get into shared risk and other things like that. But I'm wondering, is this sort of how you approached it or or kind of different way of of, of going after the market? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, in the end, it's part of the recipe for, you know, the, the solution um, is to, uh, again, tamp down that that escalating cost on healthcare. Um, right. And, and really, I, I think what we've seen for a long time is and I've talked with other uh, counterparts and, you know, Fortune 50s, um, we've been focusing on cost, but we really took our eye off the ball when we think about quality. Mm -hmm. I think if, if we pivot our focus towards quality and deliver or demand, you know, improved outcomes from a clinical quality standpoint, that will trump all, right, in terms of bringing in the, 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 the reduced waste and the reduced uh, misdiagnosis and overtesting and unnecessary procedures that uh, unfortunately account for about three out of every $10, 30% of the U.S. healthcare system has been yeah. measured to be proven to be wasteful. Um, so unfortunately, if, if we can do better around the quality side, and that was really the framework, right? If, if we can establish a mutually agreed upon set of quality uh, drivers and metrics that you know we, we would drive accountability around, we're gonna see the quality prevail in, in, in terms of you know, producing better, not just clinical outcomes, but financial outcomes as well. And um, I, I knew, that with anything you're going to learn as you go to you need to refine and iterate over time and um you know every market is different every aco in many ways are different it could be based on their structure um you know what their footprint geographically is like so uh, there's a lot of factors that go in you know to that all, all things considered but um nonetheless um, it really takes a, a deep commitment on both sides and at the end of the day, you know, there's also a need to adjudicate claims. And when you think about the mature established vendor partners that we've had for decades, you know, a health plan carrier makes a ton of sense. They do that every day. So right. you know, working more, I would say, creatively with them, perhaps to serve that role to adjudicate claims, you know, is another angle to weave into the picture. And, you know, fortunately, yeah. You know, when you think about ways to assemble these puzzle pieces to make something fly, 
um, you know, it's, it's going to require, I'd say, alignment in how we're going to execute and uh, deliver something that's better. Um, you know, yeah. some of the things on that patient experience, you know, going back to that, I think that's, that's foundational is, you know, why wait 14 days to see a primary care doc, right? And why mm -hmm. only get seven minutes for a primary care doc office visit? You know, you know, under a fee-for-service model, how, how can we change that? How can we have an uber simple same-day appointment scheduling capability where they're going to roll out, you know, the red carpet, you know, white glove treatment as far as taking care of you, almost like a concierge, and give you the time that you need as opposed to just working a, you know, volume play, seven-minute primary care office visit. And then also the follow-up and making sure that, you know, everything, even from a preventative standpoint that has not been done with that particular patient, let's make sure that they're aware and let's, let's try to, you know, make sure that we are on the right track as far as yeah. everything that goes with that as well. I, man, there's, there's a ton to unpack here. One, one thought that uh, comes to mind is, is when you, you know, essentially you mentioned that the system is only going to deliver <clears throat> what the customer demands, so to speak, that employers need to be asking and demanding for better quality. How do you think employers can work with the system today, maybe without having huge scale or, or direct contracts to demand that the system gives better, better quality or better cost either way, but how, how can we push the system? Yeah, you know, I think at the end of the day, you and I know this and many others do as well. The employers, by and large, are the ultimate payer, right? They're paying right. three, four, five X of Medicare rates. So they're they're paying a premium. And if anything, you know, I, I think this is one of the most fascinating times in, you know, the healthcare industry, just because of all the evolution and changing dynamics. But the employers absolutely can demand and pursue you know, those opportunities that are readily available, whether it's through a mature established player or an innovator, there's a range of opportunities that can enable them to make those, you know, hopes and priorities a reality. Um, you know, I think it's, 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 it's a tough one though, right? Because there's very deeply entrenched players in the industry that may not be willing to do something for a smaller bid market employer, right? The, right. the numbers just don't bear out. It's juice isn't worth the squeeze, as I mentioned earlier. So, mm -hmm. you know, how, how do you uh, coalesce and, you know, pursue those opportunities in a, in a collaborative way that's constructive and, and mutually beneficial? And, you know, I think in the end, like almost any RFP exercise, when you think about your benefit supply chain, you know, I, I think if anything, the employer needs to pursue what it is they want. And if they cannot find it, you know, in maybe a certain area, you know, perhaps there's other, other areas they, they can look at to, to do exactly that, or, you know, even partner with brilliant consultants, you know, and, uh -huh. and, you know, that have been trailblazers in many ways yeah. to help them show them the way as opposed to perpetuating status quo, if that's not what they want. If you could go back to yourself 10, 15 years ago, as you were embarking on this process, what elements of the contracts like really worked and what elements were well-intentioned, we hoped they'd work, but ended up not working or not delivering value? You know, it's, um, it's a very complex proposition when you think about bringing something like this to life. How are you going to measure? 
How are you going to report? How are you going to make sure that, you know, as we would say, all the wheels on the bus stay on as it's going down the street. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work without a doubt from, you know, the team that's, you know, focused on that, not just as far as selecting and awarding an ACO, but day-to-day operations like, and, and then, you know, the, the, business results, report outs, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, annually, you know, how are we, you know, seeing things materialize over time that can enable us to get ahead of the curve uh, as far as making some refinements or improvements where we might fall short. But, you know, I think in short, um, Lee, it's, it's, um, there's, there's a range of complexity, which I think is challenging for some, but we have seen uh, a number of other, you know, Fortune 100 employers take their own respective shots in Michigan and Florida and California and other markets with ACOs that were like-minded. And, um, you know, I, I applaud all of them, you know, because I think in the end, what they're seeing is an opportunity to pivot away from a fee-for-service model, which doesn't make a lot of sense in a lot of ways to a value-based model that is driving that accountability. So, um, you know, the, some of the things that, that we really saw is member satisfaction. You know, okay. we saw a noticeable improvement with that patient experience. You know, year one, it was off the charts way better than, you know, what we would traditionally be accustomed to when we think about our usual experience going to see a primary care doc, for example. Um, so, so, you know, I think some of those, you know, there's financial elements and non-financial elements, but at the end of the day, it all kind of goes back to that employee patient member experience. If we can, you know, absolutely improve that experience they we we, we're all about offering choice as well as far as okay this is i have to pull the i have to pull this thread a little further so you're saying that you put in sort of a direct contract kind of hey we're going to use this hospital system plan design which meant steering members maybe to a new hospital that's not closer to their homes in some cases or to a different doctor perhaps uh and then you also in the same breath said that this was a much better member experience. That's almost like telling me that black licorice is better than red. This is really exciting. How in the world did you design this so that people didn't hate it? Yeah, so uh, part of it, you know, again, was offering choice. They didn't have to take an ACO option if they did not want. Okay. And, you know, we offered it in a high deductible health plan design as well as a PPO plan design as well. But um, we offered incentives that would be attractive from a financial standpoint to the member. So again, this goes back to the financial elements and the non-financial elements. When you think about right. the financial elements, what if we offer free primary care office visits? What if we offer free generic medications, right? What if we yeah. offer same day appointment scheduling or next day, whatever's convenient for you? What if we, you know, take off the table a seven minute primary care office visit, which is pretty tried and true in the, healthcare system today. And what sure. if we offer, you know, as long as it takes, you know, I, I would even go a step further. And um, there was a point in time where I was trying to reimagine, you know, mental health, behavioral health, right. what are we going to do about making that better, more accessible, affordable, and um, mitigating, you know, risk on stigma. And, you know, some of the ideas that were swirling is how could we weave in at least a depression screening in concert with that primary care office visit? Because, Mental Absolutely. health and you know physical health are two sides of the same coin, and if we're not taking care of the whole person, we're missing a boat. So, you know, not not you know 
all healthcare systems are equipped to do exactly that. But I mean, that was kind of the vision, you know, way back in 2015 when we were trying to think about Absolutely. how can we take care of people in a bigger, better way, whether it's in person or, you know, virtual with, you know, maybe a licensed therapist or mental health coach, you know, that could help them around anxiety, depression, if they have a need, or at least show them where to go and how to get access. So they don't have to wait 35 days to see so somebody. You'd give, these, you'd give everybody a choice. So, Hey, here's a plan design. It is narrower, but you don't have to take it. Then if you do take it, here's exactly where you're going to go. Oh, and also we're going to make it, you know, free and, and accessible to get into primary care. We're going to have better primary care, longer visits and, and uh, more holistic, including the mental health piece, as well as the physical uh, free generic meds. All of these sound like terrific perks. So it seems like the, the patient could kind of have a good idea of what all the valuable elements are before they went into it. And so you didn't have the same, you didn't have any uprisings around narrowing a network. Correct. Yeah. And the other thing that I th thought was pretty, uh, you know, important uh, as a, as a team, it was a great idea. What if we ratchet a higher contribution to a health savings account? If they're in an ACO high deductible health plan option, that, this would be an employer, you know, contribution that'd be higher than, what we were doing just, you know, for the plain vanilla high deductible health plan. Um, so that, that was real money, right? That would be socked away. Or if they're in a ACO PPO plan design option, what if we lower their monthly premium plan contribution that they're paying out of pocket being a plan, right? Sure. It's real dollar savings. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, this could equate to, uh, based on individual versus family coverage, it, it could equate to, you know, maybe 500 or a thousand or, or more dollars in, in real savings. Right. And that's going to vary a yeah. bit based on, you know, what's their, what's their experience, what's their utilization with medical? Like, you know, do we have somebody that's in a polychronic state with multiple chronic health conditions and they have multiple doctors as part of their medical team and, you know, can they access and, you know, get all that through the ACO or, you know, distance is another factor, right? I mean, maybe it's yep. not convenient and it's too close. far, so that doesn't work for me. And I'm just going to stick with what I got. And that's, that's totally cool too. But it's just trying to layer in some of these carrots or incentives to just help people understand that, you know, there, there's a real opportunity, um, not just financially, but also with the experience we're trying to improve over time with, you know, these partners. A lot of people don't necessarily find huge savings in direct contracting. Um, why, uh, why do you think that is? What are, what are the reasons behind that? And it may be that in some direct contracts, you're not trying to save money, but most of the employers with whom I speak are, and uh, they don't necessarily materialize. And I was wondering if you could give us some insight, an insider's view on that. Yeah. You, you know, if you trace back to, I want to say it might've been around 20, 18 or so in, in the USA, there was north of 600 different ACO constructs coast to coast. And it was a mixed bag. Uh, there were some that were successful and some not, not so successful at all. So, you know, yeah. I, if anything, I think it was maybe a, a, a North star to help guide us on, all right, for that cohort that are doing well, what, what are they doing? Well, what's going on there? You know, and then for the others that are not, you know, maybe it's the construct, um, you know, there, there could be a myriad of factors, but really at the end of the day, um, each market, each ACO, each construct with what you're bringing together, you know, certainly may vary a bit. 
um, based on the dynamics of, you know, that, that market and what the willingness is, right, for that system, that ACO to uh, make that leap and commit to as well. Um, the value, though, I, I really think is um, really born into focusing away from fee-for-service and, and really putting the accountability on, on quality. And if we can measure that and do that better, again, that's, that's really going to be, along with the member experience, it's going to be foundational, right, with how we raise the bar on mm -hmm. everything we're doing together. Um, I think there was a lot of learnings uh, over the years, and they still continue to this day, um, certainly within the direct contract at ACOs. And, you know, the COEs um, as well have, I would say, been a, a good success story when you look at the savings derived from avoiding those unnecessary high-cost surgical procedures. Right. Where that COE had the clinical rigor to maybe render a, a expert second opinion on the diagnosis and the treatment pathway and say, Hey, Jason, this isn't the right surgery for you. Let's, you know, mm -hmm. take care of X, Y, Z over here. And these are some alternatives that might be more prudent and clinically appropriate at this time for you. It makes perfect sense. I want to pivot to something that, that I've run into recently in some of our, uh, some different conversations around uh, sort of a grass is greener effect. When I, when I speak to small employers, they think, oh, Lee, you're interviewing, you know, the largest employers on the planet. They spend billions on healthcare. So they can do, they can do all this interesting stuff and they can bully a carrier and they can get special exceptions and all the little guys can't, you know, can't achieve that. But then I speak to the large employers and they're like, oh man, I've got all this red tape, bureaucracy and lawyers. I'm swimming <laughs> in an ocean of lawyers. And these little companies, they can do, they can move so fast, you know, and it, it's, it's funny. Everybody's looking at the other side. I wanted to ask you the question, what were some of the items um, of which you were jealous of small employers that you thought, oh my gosh, I could, I could get this done so much faster if I were, you know, if I were a small employer. Yeah, it's, you know, I think that's one, it's the velocity or speed to yeah. action, right? I mean, it, the large complex organization, it might take months, you know, based on, you know, obtaining, you know, the, all, all the approvals that are well intended. Right. But um, there's a process. And, uh, you know, I think with, you know, perhaps uh, a smaller, you know, employer, you know, maybe uh, have less, less, uh, you know, of the hoops to jump through. Um, and, and maybe it's just a different construct. I, I think it, you know, again, there's, there's, it's a great call out because on the flip side, I even saw this within Midwest Business Group on Health over the years, which has a mix of small, mid-market and large jumbo employers. And, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd hear the same thing from the small mid-market employers, you know, oh, you're with so-and-so, you're special, you can get anything you want. And it's like, well, right. it's not, not always the case. But, um, you know, on the flip side, you know, I, I'm really enamored with some of these trailblazers on the small mid-market side as well, because there are some really great companies that are doing some really cool, innovative stuff. And, um, you know, I've been privileged to uh, meet some of them over the years as well and uh, learn from them too. So I think if anything, it's just, you know, opening your mind to really all stakeholders and even from the employer market, all sizes, as far as what, what's working for them and how can I maybe mm -hmm. take a chapter out of their playbook and plug it in and play it with what I'm trying to solve for, you know, within, you know, where I'm at. Which strategies that you were able to use and benefit from at Boeing 
would and and AT and T as well would apply well to smaller employers. Things that they they ought to be doing right now, for instance. Yeah, I mean, if we think for a second about what's the highest utilized benefit that any employer offers, it's going to be pharmacy, right? And um, you know, when we think about you know the PBM landscape, any size employer can take a leap and pursue what they want in regards to their pharmacy spend and the retail pharmacies and, you know, having the right to customize their formulary and, you know, maybe look at ways to remove some egregious or excessively priced products from their formulary and have a waste-free formulary, at least aspirationally, right? But try to drive a better trend on spend on the, on the pharmacy front too. Um, and there's a lot of creativity that any size employer could take full advantage of if, they pursue it and, and do it in the right way. Um, you know, I, I think part of the equation is having someone you can trust that is independent and objective and has a track record of experience of showing the way with other clients of, you know, maybe deviating from the status quo or looking at fresh new ways, you know, and, and, you know, I, there, there's a line that, that I love. It's, um, if, if, if not now, then when, and if not me, then who? And when I think about if mm -hmm. not now, then when, and if not me, then who, um, you know, now is a great time as far as constructing what you want when you think about the pharmacy spend, but also identifying the consultants that have done that as opposed to maybe, you know, just perpetuating, you know, misaligned incentives that have plagued the industry for far too long. So there's a lot to unpack there as well, Lee, when you think about, yeah. do I have a trustworthy consultant or broker that is looking out for my best interests, almost like a fiduciary in a lot of ways. And then on the financial side of things, and then how can I weave that into the construct that I want beginning with the end in mind. Right. So do I want to just continue to pay whatever I'm paying year over year with those annual cost increases on my pharmacy spend? Or do I want to have, you know, more capabilities to, again, just like the medical example, tamp down, you know, the trend on spend. My aspirational goal with any benefit supply chain was to try to identify a way to get to a negative trend on spend year over year. And if I fall short, maybe it's a flat trend on spend, but I'll tell you what, that's going to be far better than, you know what the national average is for employers and Absolutely. Uh, you know when, when we look at every penny saved um in, in terms of real real dollar savings that you know for a large jumbo that could equate to a hundred million dollars in savings oh, yeah. so if i save so, you know let's say 600 million dollars that's like six pennies on earnings per share when we think about how does this draw back to the bottom line and correlate to wall street as far as a PL game that i'm actually working on as as a company for just benefits healthcare alone just based on you know the vast sums that we're dealing with i want to i want to push on that of okay so if i'm a benefits manager and i'm looking at the different elements of spend my goal is to get to flat trend and i totally agree with that many people feel like either that's unreasonable or unattainable maybe take us under your wing for a minute and coach us tactically on, on how we can get flat trend in a couple of areas right now. Yeah. Um, one thing that worked really well 
for me over the years was having a competitive bid RFP process. Okay. And really, um, now everybody know, does that and we don't usually, we don't necessarily get great results. So you've got to be doing it in a special way. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. So if you're just doing RFP to do an RFP and maybe, maybe you switch a vendor or maybe you don't, you know, that, that may not really bear much fruit in terms of savings. It might be incremental savings, but it's not going to, you know, really fall that's off the right. cliff in terms of savings. So that's really where, you know, whether it's medical or pharmacy or dental or vision, we've had experience, you know, over the past decade plus around ways to take full advantage of identifying upfront what it is you want to solve for. You know, on the PBM side, I was looking at non-financial elements as well as financial elements, you know, maybe I should move away from traditional spread price and go to acquisition cost plus that's fully transparent and gives me complete command and control um, to contract and partner with whoever I want, anytime, any reason, as well as, you know, auditing firms, all that kind of stuff, right? Those are, you know, uh, I'd say a sandbox of non-financial elements that I can define and, you know, create my own terms and conditions and, you know, uh, as well as define what's the definition of rebate. I mean, those, those are all things that, you know, one can do, right? And then when you think about the financial exercise, you know, sometimes it can become a spreadsheet analytical exercise where, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, in some ways maybe a bit outdated as far as what's really going on today in 2023 versus where we're at in 2013 with some of these different, sure. you know, uh, opportunities. I, I, I think the other thing is when you look at maybe modernizing your benefit, um, maybe you have a broad-based network across the U.S. with your retail pharmacy network, or maybe your vision plan network, um, you know, could get anchored down with some high-value, uh, you know, partners that um, really focus on lowest unit net cost. And we see a lot of variability in cost and margin, certainly in the optical field, when we look at what's going on there. So how can we take full advantage of, I would say, on unlocking and uncapping that value in the form of the RFP and uh, ultimately select, you know, that, that vendor partner that is going to align with you entirely without deviation and, you know, give you the green light and, you know, you get that golden coin, Lee, you know, you're going to yeah. get to move forward with exactly what you want and we're not going to get in your way. And on top of it, we're going to give you rock bottom, you know, admin fees and, you know, everything else that is pretty typical in the industry. But the whole point is I, I, I want my supply chain to be solvent and to be healthy and to be around. So, you know, right. I want something that's fair and reasonable, but at the end of the day, I think it's attacking, you know, what are those, you know, I would say misaligned, you know, incentives, perverse incentives that are in the industry. How can we remove that? How can we get rid of the waste? And, you know, part of that is, you know, again, going into the detail on the non-financial elements and, you know, establishing this is my sandbox. This is how we're going to function, go forward. And if you want to participate, you know, let's, let's do this. But if you don't no no harm, no foul, you know, we'll try to find mm -hmm. someone else. This is interesting. So now let's let's pivot a little bit to medical. Say I'm an employer. I'm going to go out to do an RFP. Uh, I'm a modest, maybe mid-market size, uh, and I'm going out to medical RFP. What are the three things that I need to be getting in that RFP in order to, to start improving my position? Yeah, so first of all, you know, it's always going to boil down to two key things, right? What's the financial 
value prop. And how does that compare from my current state to my future state, right? What's what's the net net of this thing going to look right. like? Um, and there's a number of things I can weave in, you know, like maybe there's a way I can, you know, establish, you know, some financial uh, language around, um, you know, fees at risk and service level agreements and, and some lines of business, maybe rate guarantees, you know, um, that would be a fixed rate guarantee. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, the financial side of the equation, that is going to be essential, right? To really have, you know, clarity on, on that, on the non-financial side. Um, what's that partnership really going to look like from a employee experience, right? What kind of disruption am I potentially facing? If I were to switch from one vendor to another, am I improving or reducing my network and access points of care on the medical side? You know, those, those are tough tough calls and, you know, important, you know, analytical points to understand from that employee experience standpoint, how is that going to change? When we think about transition, vendor transition and change management and communications, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a, you know, is it a plus or a minus in the eyes of the people that we're looking out for? And that's our employees and their families. So, you know, anything we can do to raise the bar and making their experience better, uh, quality and, you know, lower cost and a better member experience. I think, you know, if we, we would take a triple aim, I would take a triple aim value-based framework to everything. And one thing that I stole shamelessly from my friends at Google years ago was they would call it the three E's and it's, you know, the experience, which is predicated on the member, the effectiveness predicated on clinical quality and efficiency, you know, it's the financial ROI. If we can check those three boxes off directionally in the right direction on the three E's, I love experience, that. effectiveness, and efficiency, we know that more often than not, we're, we're definitely on the right pathway forward. So whether it's medical, PBM, dental vision, some new health tech innovator startup, if we can make you know, all that directionally better, you know, we're going to be in a really good place. What were the main KPIs that you would look at to know if your health plan was doing well? Yeah, it varied. I mean, we had a number of KPIs, um, you know, from the medical side, like when we were talking about, you know, ACO side of things, that was all really heavy on quality metrics, right? Because we're trying okay. to improve quality and, you know, deliver a better experience and outcomes all around clinical quality. And that's going to bear out in, into the financial bottom line if we do it right. Um, you know, when we think about pharmacy, uh, you know, we had literally dozens and dozens of slides that we would review every quarter, but, you know, even in between our quarterly business reviews, you know, we had the right to look at our formulary and make tough decisions on, you know, what do we, you know, modify as far as coverage or, or, or no coverage. And, you know, it's a timely topic today with the GLP-1s, anti-obesity medications, right? You got two schools of thought, like these cost a lot, but they show great promise. And then, you know, maybe we still consider it a lifestyle drug and just don't cover it at all. So, you know, it's right. a whole nother conversation, but, you know, it, it's, it's thinking through like, what are the implications, not just clinically, but also financially. And, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, we would try to weave into this is on the KPI front is, um, reasonable metrics that, you know, were not just, you know, embedded with what we did every year, but we would look at ways to try to bring in new KPIs and 
update and modernize that as well, especially if we did an RFP. We're looking perhaps at a whole new slew of, you know, KPIs based on the construct of, you know, a new program that we're looking to scale up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's some of it, you know, might be more of a, uh, you know, planning exercise to figure out where are we falling short on a KPI front? What can we make up to shore that up? And how can we mitigate risk as well, which is always a key consideration with anything we do, um, you know, on, on the vendor supply chain side of things. Yeah. What are the biggest mistakes that employers are making today that, man, if we could just turn those around, we could really move the industry forward? Yeah, it's um, probably three key areas. Um, really hammering down on medical and pharmacy because that accounts for over 80% and most employers healthcare spend every year. And there's a lot of opportunity on those fronts. Um, we're seeing a lot of movement towards advanced primary care, which is really interesting. And I think it bodes well for you know everyday patients. Um, on the health tech innovator side, we've seen a ton of innovators over the last decade, thousands in fact, that sprouted up and, you know, very uh, wide ranging clinical categories. And I think that there is a real play long, long term with, you know, virtual solutions that can arguably deliver. And, and even based on their peer reviewed journal articles and white papers and case studies, demonstrate superior evidence based outcomes to meet anyone, anywhere, anytime regardless of, you know, zip code and, you know, lack of, you know, access to medical or food or whatever the case might be, you know, when we think about social determinants on health and, you know, DE and I, how can we make sure that no one is left behind from a healthcare perspective? And that's the real play. I think as we look ahead over the next 20 years, you're going to see more convergence of what we're doing from a virtual play into the traditional, play. I, I think there's a lot of fragmentation and silos in a lot of ways, unfortunately, and data interoperability that's opportunistic that can all come together much better and cleaner. Um, so there's there's much, I would say, on, on the path forward that I'm excited about that can really drive impact. But um, we still have a ways to go. I mean, in real life, if you have a patient that is going to a primary care doc, maybe an OBGYN, maybe a psychiatrist, they might have multiple prescriptions from three different sources, maybe four. Sure. And oftentimes they have no idea what's being prescribed and what's going on for that patient because, you know, they're working in a fragmented siloed state in many cases. So, you know, how, how can we ensure that, you know, we're bringing this all together? And I, and I think that's really what's exciting about a lot of the innovators that I'm seeing. They're taking steps forward to do exactly that to integrate that holistic care all together. That's interesting. Where do you see the biggest opportunity right now that's that's getting too overlooked for employers to improve cost or quality? Yeah, it's a it's a great one. Um, I have uh, concerns on a few different areas. You know, certainly mental health has been top of mind for the last four plus years for many. Um, the pandemic exacerbated that and we still have a, a ways to go when we think about, you know, how can we do better around that front for all people, regardless of age. When we think about um, obesity and cardiometabolic health syndrome, 
you know, by 2030, it's projected that 50% of America will be technically classified as obese. So think of the trillions of dollars of spend that will be going towards that clinical category. Right now, today, we're at about 42% of the USA that's, that's obese or overweight. So we have, a, we have a lot of opportunity to try to help people live a better quality of life through behavior change and, you know, doing a ton of things on, on, in that area. And then, you know, when we think about the correlation of, you know, those two big, you know, areas of opportunity, you know, my, my simplistic view is, and this goes back to like 2015, right? When we were talking about, you know, what if we were to weave in a depression screening with a primary care office visit, or what if we were able to bring solutions forward that could take care of the whole person? You know, there's, there's a real play when we think about helping employers and helping patients um, not be left behind, mm-hmm. get access, improve affordability. We have 100 million Americans that are grappling with medical debt today. 53%, you know, bypassed getting a prescription medication filled last year because they had made a tough choice to you know, maybe put food on the table or pay their rent. Um, yeah. So you know, affordability is a huge issue. Accessibility is a huge issue. Stigma, certainly on a behavioral health side, is, is still a tough issue. You know, over 100,000 opioid deaths, you know, last year for the first time. We've seen the life expectancy rates decline in recent years in the USA. And yeah. we're, we're grappling with uh, north of a $4 trillion annual healthcare spend in the U.S. and $11 trillion globally. And that's accounting for, you know, roughly 20% of our GDP. So no one yeah. in sight keeps going higher. I remember, you know, when it was $3.6 trillion, So here we are, you know, around $4.2 trillion, And it yeah. just keeps going higher. So we, we have to figure out how to, I would say, collectively uh, as thought leaders and, um, you know, employers and beyond, you know, really take some shots to bend that trend for the good of our people. I mean, if Absolutely. anything, we got a real opportunity to do more. I think that's a, a great kind of message of hope to finish on. That's what we're here for is to try and improve the way uh, the system works using our, our benefits and healthcare plans to be able to get there. Uh, Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you found uh, today's helpful, uh, today's meeting helpful, feel free to connect with Jason uh, over on LinkedIn as a way to, uh, to reach out to him if they want to continue to interact and, and, uh, feel free to send today's episode to any friends or connections who, uh, who might be able to learn from it as well. And thanks for joining us on Broken Benefits. Thanks for joining us on Broken Benefits. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, please share today's show with a friend or colleague. It's free to do, and it helps us spread the message to as many people as possible. 